Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash support. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Yes, what's happening out there in Electric Liberty Land, folks? Now, guys, this is Electric Liberty Land, episode 25, which means you can find it at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL25. Now, 25 episodes is not bad. I will say that. Not bad at all but pales in comparison to 300 episodes, which is what the Lions of Liberty podcast is at. That is Mark's uh, flagship show. And for the 300th episode, guys, you got to check it out. He had Jason Stapleton on from the Jason Stapleton program. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with Jason's work. And Larry Sharp, who was uh, also close to being the VP that this party needed. He was the hero that this party needed over at the uh, Libertarian Convention, but got beaten out by... The great Bill Weld. So do check that out, guys. And also, please, while you're at it, check out our new sponsor, Martin Armory. That's martinarmory.com. They have an amazing selection of guns, fantastic prices on those. I mean, really insane prices because what they do is they go out of their way to not stock every single gun out there. You know, it's not every gun across the spectrum. So what they do is they're able to buy just the top 25 armaments that you would want, including my own favorite, the 357. I personally prefer the, uh, the three inch to 3.5 inch barrel because I think it's incredibly accurate. That's just me personally. You might be a Glock man. I don't know. Or Glock woman. A Glockette. So anyway, check them out, please, if you would be so kind. And additionally, guys, uh, as Mark said, we do have our Lions of Liberty pride. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I uh, I was talking, we did a recent call with uh, with one of our pride members, Daniel. It says we have a certain level where we do a call once a month with our pride supporters where they, they reach that certain point. And Daniel was saying I should cut out the clip of Alex Jones. You know, you've got electric liberty in your eyes. And I may yet do it. <laughs> I may yet. But you know what? I prefer if one of you did it for me, because frankly, I uh, I don't even know what episode it was in. <laughs> so if you know and you can pull that that 10 second clip, then uh, then I'll blow you kisses. Give you a shout out on the show. How about that? All right. So this is episode 25. Again, guys, you can find that lions of forward slash ELL 25. And there's a bunch of stuff I want to get into today. Uh, I mean, there's just been. Since I last spoke with you, since you last heard my voice, an amazing amount of uh, of news coming out, including news in my very own hood. And I want to start the top of the show with the topic which you heard me talk about before, if you uh, listened a couple of shows back, and I'll link to this. I think it was episode 23. But I was talking about this local aspect of government, and the, basically the city council member named Mike Bonin, or Bonin, B-O-N-I-N, he had put through this thing called the Great Streets Initiative on Venice Boulevard, which is the major thoroughfare that goes to Venice Beach throughout all of the year, but mostly in the summertime where it gets very backed up. And what they had done is they took a three lane on each side of the road, three lanes, squeezed it down to two. And what I've come to learn is a LA-wide phenomenon called the quote-unquote road diet. So in already horribly traffic-constricted Los Angeles, Governor Jerry Brown and his uh, his crony, 
imbeciles have put us on a quote-unquote road diet to try to make more people abandon cars and take their bicycles, which, of course, presumes that people could just get off their, you know, get, get out of the cars and jump on a bicycle and get to work and not show up sweaty and have diarrhea on the way there from the three cups of coffee you had at the brand muffin. It's so, so dumb. So they're like, oh, God. I mean, seriously, the concept government says it's not what's it's not what's best for people. It's what we want. We want less traffic. And here's the way we're going to make less traffic is we're going to make traffic so bad, so bad by constricting the roads that people will, will not want to drive anymore. Thanks, government. Is that I mean, isn't that the, the typical solution, by the way, to smoking? Let's make it so bad and so awful and so expensive that they're not going to want to do it anymore. Forget letting people live their lives. Forget giving people the option to do what they want or not do what they want or or try different measures to entice people to do something or other. No, no, no. Let's keep raising gas prices and cigarette prices. Anyway, I'm getting off on a rant here. Let me circle back because there's something else we can get mad on this topic. So anyway, there's a a website, popular website called nextdoor.com. And nextdoor.com is a community-centric website, basically kind of like a little baby Facebook uh, or a Tumblr it's probably more apropos. So you post something there, a topic. You can say, oh, I found someone's dog, you know, which is nice to see a lot of that. People can find the lost dog, etc. But there was also this initiative to fight back against the great streets. And I got active in it because, you know, me, I'm, I'm a little shit stir. So I'm getting in there and I'm, I'm getting my nose in. I'm, I'm, not, I'm trying not to, to be overly uh, libertarian. I'm not trying to lecture I'm just trying to pepper in wisdom and pepper in in points about how this is government overreach and this is you know government at its worst, you know, ill thought out uh, concepts because they want this high minded everybody's healthier. We want it to be more of a Parisian city and everybody can bike and you know it's going to reduce all this, and reduce emissions, and none of those things happen. You know what ends up happening is far more emissions as trucks and cars sit in the traffic that has that has been caused, and a concept that doesn't apply here because L.A. is not a bikeable city; it is a sprawling mass. L.A. is one. If you've never been here, L.A. is a giant suburb. That's it. There's no real city center to it. So all of this conversation is going back and forth about this initiative. They have a local uh, a local you know town hall meeting, which Mike Bonin is too much of a damn coward to even show up to. So he sends three three lackeys to take the abuse. And apparently from what I read and heard from people on this next door, it was about 80 people to 20 people saying they wanted the streets to go back the way they were, and it was incredibly inconvenient. So to wrap this story up, what has gone on now is that I had to stop and laugh, and I had to question if this is a, a real thing, but but people got on here, and as progressives are wont to do, they start getting on there and they talk about how, oh, this is going to help the poor. This is, you know, you selfish, rich people in your cars. Their cars, of all things, are, are for what rich people have now. Never mind, by the way, that the people I see most often biking around in Los Angeles are not the poor people. They are people that are uh, bicycling in their Speedos to work because they have that option. They're biking to their tech job down the block where they have a shower, etc. You do not see many day laborers bicycling off to go to their job. Typically, they have a truck or some other mode of transportation that's a, a cheap option they bought used or were able to get a good deal on. They're not bicycling over to the Home Depot to do their day labor. So, these people, though, they post, they go, oh, you know what? This is just, I, I can't believe this, this privilege everyone has. You, you, know, you think you could, you know, you're, you're objecting to any change. And then one guy, this is when you know they really have absolutely nothing to say. Nothing left to say. 
that can be said is one guy posts in response to a guy named Curtis Honda, who clearly is not uh, not a, a, a man of white privilege, and he had he had said as much. Uh, you know, his parents were in intern camps, that kind of stuff. When they're he's Japanese. And uh, and a uh, a woman who is Hispanic is the other person in this conversation. They're posting about how this is institutional racism, pushing back against this bicycle lane. <laughs> and to be honest, I don't know exactly how the dots were connected in that way. And I guess you know they don't have to be, because that's what it seems like. Anytime somebody drops the racism bomb, especially progressives, it is literally when they've reached the point where they have no other alternative they've no all the roads have been blocked as much as they've blocked our street of Venice boulevard with the, the lane restriction we kept restricting the lanes from this one person i'm not going to say his name but this one person we kept restricting the logic lanes down and down and down no that doesn't make sense because of this no the studies have shown the accidents have gone up first responders can't get to people that are dying from emergencies so whatever people would be saved by a bike accident that has now been already people have died from this so we're blocking off all the lanes and then of course Oh, this is just institutional racism talking. And I just, I mean, that's the point where I, I, I lost it. I had to check out. I had to, I had to stop commenting because there's like, when there's nothing, when you, when somebody drops that, there's nothing much left you can do. And I had an experience similar to this when I was at a bar talking to uh, a man I thought was a friend similarly, um, or previously. And, you know, I saw him, I was out, uh, actually, I was out with Mark, Mark Claire, uh, we were singing a little karaoke and saw some friends at the bar. So we walked over, I said, hello, how you doing? And we get to talking and, uh, you know, things are going smoothly, talking about public relations, this and that. And the guy brings up, and he goes, oh, you know, I, yeah, I could use a good PR firm, but, uh, you know, with your politics, I don't think it would work for me. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an ideologue and that I, I let it bleed over into my, my work. I, <laughs> Especially in Los Angeles, I don't think that would go over too well if I had my libertarian uh, sticker on my forehead every time I met with people. But so we get to talking and I'm talking about strategy and I can help him. And then he, he brings up that he actually has had a lot of media exposure because he heads up a resistance group. And, you know, I went out oh, internally. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus Christ. OK, but, you know, it's still I I wanted to test out my own theories because I've talked to people about how I feel you can talk to others about libertarianism and my problems with libertarianism. My issue primarily is that, you know, we, we take on a condescending attitude as if we know more than everybody else. Now, and I granted a lot of times that is true because to be honest, it's hard to be a real libertarian without doing your research into economics and doing your research into a government and doing your research into the legislative bodies and all these other things that go on that make us pissed off and taxation and all this other stuff. So oftentimes, yes, we might know a little bit more, but that doesn't help when you're rubbing it in someone's face. So I want to try out my my bar techniques. I want to try out the way I think libertarianism should be talked about in which I feel that you need to make a connection upon shared principles and you need to fight the, do you think this is quote unquote fair doctrine that progressives subscribe to with a counterpoint about fairness or the narrative that likes to be pushed forward to go against libertarians is don't you care? Don't you care about the poor? Don't you care about the sick? And there is a counter narrative to that, which is very powerful. And it's, yes, I care immensely. I, in fact, I'd argue that I care more than you because I'm actually trying to do something to change the status quo and to fix the problem. 
It's not putting a Band-Aid on it or uh, or pushing it down the line or, or you know pretending to do something when really all you're doing is making things more expensive and worse. It's the fact that we do care quite a lot, but we just have a different opinion as to the best way to solve the problem. We're not trying to ignore the problem or push it out. We're trying to solve the problem in a different way that we feel will be much more effective and, FYI, has history backing it up. So I try to interact with, with this guy. And, you know, I said, well, let's just have a conversation, man. Um, he goes, he had told me he had talked to 99 libertarians and not one of them had changed his mind. And once, and by the way, once somebody says that to you, you pretty much know that they're going to be a, just a complete asshole. Because really, you talk to 99 of them and none of them had a single, single thing that you thought might have been interesting. Sounds like you had a closed mind. So I talked about, I say, you know, I just have an open mind. Let's just have a conversation here. You know, I don't want to fight with you. So immediately, it was like a, just a change. His face changed, his voice changed, his body posture changed, became very aggressive. And it immediately starts just peppering me with questions. Well, okay, well, what do you think? How, how would, okay, explain to me this, explain to me this. How would libertarians uh, solve Katrina? How would you solve Katrina, man? And I'm like, hey, I was like, hey, calm down. I just want to talk to you. Don't, you know, don't interrogate me here. I just want to have a conversation with you. Don't get condescending. It was being very condescending to me. Very condescending. So don't get condescending, man. Your voice is condescending. Everything about this is, is wrong. Just relax. We're just talking here. I just want to talk to you. And he's like, oh, I'm not doing anything. I'm not doing anything. Whatever. So I'm like, okay. So then again, starts it again. Well, what about Katrina? How would you do that? I'm like, okay, Jesus. I said, okay, fine. You want me to talk about Katrina? I say, oh, let me ask you a question. Do you think that the the federal government handled Katrina well? And then he's like, and then he's like, what? Oh, no, you could ask me a question. Answer my question. Again, this is like an ass, like the biggest asshole tactic. There's a guy that I I had liked. I just can't even tell you how much of just a douchebag, like drop of a hat douchebag. It's a drop of a hat douchebag. So anyway, I'm uh, so I'm like, fine, man. I'll I'll talk to you about Katrina. I'll lay out how how it would work. How you know people how insurance would help. How privatized fire police services would help. How the government can still be involved in the ways that you can still even if you don't have a, a you know even in a libertarian society you still have emergency responders. You still have the military, which you can use to help in that sort of thing for emergency bailouts. You, you, know, you still have that kind of thing in a libertarian world. But again, I get maybe fifteen seconds into this explanation. Before he interrupts me and he goes, I just, you know, I just, man, I just, I think you're naive. You know, I just think your, your, your thinking's very naive. And at that point, I just got up, just nodded my head and I just walked away from him. And that was it. And that's, yeah, say goodbye to Bart. I was, I was tired and drunk anyway. So to be honest, I was fitting to leave, but it just got to the point where I just, there's no point. I mean, there really is. There's sometimes there's no point in trying to talk to somebody because you're not going to reach them. And I've had to do that several times. Especially, and, and again, only with progressives, if I'm being perfectly honest, only with progressives, because they are so shut off to any possibility that you have something interesting to say that is of value to them, that they can't listen. But on the counterpoint to that, I had a very interesting interaction with a, a progressive, very progressive guy who is a doctor. He's actually a psychiatrist. And we had a great interaction. I mean, it's either same bar, probably the same seats at the same bar, uh, but a completely different experience. And, and, you know, it was back and forth. It was, he, he was, you know, we're talking about uh, Obamacare and the medical industry, obviously, as you would, as you would presume. And, but we had a great rapport back and forth. Uh, and I, and I was wondering why I say, why is this? 
And I think it's because of this. And you can you can tweet at me at Brian McWilliams if you think I'm wrong um, and tell me to, to, you know, I've got my head so far up my ass that I can't, you know, I can't see past my lungs. But here's my theory is that while progressives, my, my biggest problem is that they are so emotional, there's no way to break that emotional wall. And especially when you start looking at psychology and these deeper things like, you know, I was talking about this podcast, You Were Not So Smart podcast that goes into rebound theory and how people become so protective of ideas and they take them as part of their being where you can't crack that shell. And so the harder you try or the more logical arguments you go to that might worm their way in there, the harder they push back because they can't allow it in there because it would really rock who they are, who they identify as. That's the emotional side of things. But this doctor, I mean, doctors as a whole are analytical as a group. So you think of that and you think of the scientist's mind. So when I'm speaking to this doctor, my theory is that he's more open to it. Because while he might believe one thing, while he has a, a belief and he might have an emotional connection to those ideas, at the same time, this is a man of science. This is a man who's been trained to look at the facts and look at the data and analyze it and come up with a conclusion that's supposed to solve the problem. So he is not going to discount my ideas because he wants to have an open mind to it. And the, if I can provide some some you know, logical points there that he's going to agree with, then, yeah, I, I've got my way in. You know, and, and he and I are going to talk again. It's going to, you know, I hope I become good friends with this guy. And I was talking to some of the other guys in our lines of Liberty email, and they had a similar anecdotes. Uh, our buddy JB is in the science uh, field and he said the same thing. You know, he, he talks to a lot of people and they are more open to it when they are in that field. And again, this is my own theory, but I'm curious to see if you guys have had a similar experience. So uh, do a little feedback. You can also give a little feedback on our forum over at the, uh, the, over at the Facebooks. And that's just type in Lions of Liberty in that Facebook search bar. And if you don't look too crazy, we'll let you in the forum. But we have a lot of good dialogue going on over on there. Additionally, don't forget to follow us at Lions of Liberty on Twitter. That's a good place to be. And uh, how about we get into our first topic? How about that? And by the way, I am going to get into this bar talk a little bit later because I want to do a, a new segment I'm going to introduce. But um, let's talk a little bit about Bill Maher first. Because the whole Bill Maher saga, which if you've been following the media, basically what happened was Bill Maher went on... You know, his show, as <laughs> you'd imagine he would. He went on his show and he made a joke that he used the N-word. And he didn't even really use the N-word. Not the capital N ends in an E-R word. He used nigga, which is a word that's been said in a million movies by white people. It's said uh, a million times a day throughout society. It's something that has been basically defanged to the point where you would not think that a man like Bill Maher, who has been very progressive. He calls himself a libertarian, but of course, he's not a damn libertarian. But a man that's been very progressive, very outspoken in support of a lot of uh, a lot of issues that the left holds dear, you wouldn't think that they would turn on him, of all people. Tooth and nail, coming at you like a, like a whirlwind of teeth and, and claws, like, like Harry Carey in uh, Saturday Night Live. But Bill Maher got in trouble basically for saying he was a house nigga was what he said. That was the joke. Somebody had made made a comment about him, you know, going out and doing work. And his joke was that, oh no, I'm a, I'm a rich guy. I'm a rich white pussy. I'm, I I don't work outside. I'm a house nigga. That was his joke. And it was, you know, you could argue whether or not it was appropriate or not. Really, if at worst, it's just not that funny of a joke. I thought it was a pretty decent comeback in truth to whatever this, this comment was. 
But it's not something that should have caused an uproar. But you had people calling for his for his job. Of course, all the people on the left, all of Black Twitter, Black Twitter rises up. And, uh, and that look up Black Twitter, by the way, if you're not familiar with it, it is it is a thing, uh, kind of funny thing. But Black Twitter rose up and called for his head and you know said how oh, this is so awful and unbelievable and insulting. And, uh, and, and Bill Maher, much to my surprise and much to my chagrin, rolled over like a bitch and apologized. Uh, he rolled over on his back and he set up on the next deal. You know, Al Franken was supposed to be on his show following this comment, but instead he booked a, a an author. Uh, I think it's Michael Eric Dyson is his name. They had an author who's been on the show before, you know, uh, black author and uh, you know, intellectual. And he came on and he was the first guest and lectured Bill Maher about his use of the N-word and how he can't say it and all this and that and the other one. And then they set up a panel later on, which was hilarious, where they had, it was like, you know, Dyson, and then they had Ice Cube on there, and then they had this other uh, gal, Simone, somebody or other was on there. So they lined up like an all-black show. So it's just a firing squad for Bill Maher. And Bill Maher, you know, who'd been a guy who... I never thought he was the funniest guy in the world, but I liked him fine. He had some funny bits. I liked the fact that he usually would uh, would quit back and forth. He would he would take a shot at the left end, shot at the right here and there. He at least gave Ron Paul the time of day, which is good to see. Give Rand Paul the time of day. So you know, Mars a guy which it's sad to see him roll over like this. And uh, kudos to HBO, by the way. They didn't say peep. People were saying give fire Bill Maher, and they were just they just kind of sat back like, no, nah, that's stupid. We're going to let that blow over. We're not going to do anything about this. So good to them. But during this interview, and by the way, listen to, um, I'll give Dave Smith a plug here. So Dave Smith did a fantastic show. He did an entire show on part of the problem where he broke down this whole topic like for an hour. I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to touch on it quickly. But here's my issues with with the show and and with Bill Maher's saying. So so Bill Maher said this one comment, which again, like I said, a million times people use the word, especially nigga, not E-R-A at the end. But Dyson pulls out this text from his son while he's on the show. And he's like, this is what my son sent me. And he's he's saying like this, uh, like, you know, the, this this commentary his son gave him. But in the context of this, he was like, you know, his son said that Bill Maher's a white boy. And he's like, well, you know, these white boys can't be using N-word, you know, blah, blah, blah. But he's calling Bill Maher in the text a white boy. Right? So how, why is it okay for him to do that? It's a condescending term, you know, white boy, but is anybody making a big deal of it? No. Why? Because it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But I like this this hypocrisy that's that's present here, where Bill Maher says something where it's a, it's a throw-off line, and it's clearly a joke, but it's totally cool for this guy to come on and use a different derogatory term to Bill Maher and use it as a teaching tool, because that was a big center, by the way, of this, this too, is they, it was a, a teaching moment. That's what this Dyson guy kept saying. It's a teaching moment. And Dyson also said that Mars joke contributed to like ongoing violence. Uh, this, you know, this, <laughs> this overarching society of violent tendencies or something ridiculous. Like Bill Mars joke saying that he is a house nigga is going to be the thing that sets off somebody going and, and lynching some guy in the woods. I mean, come on, man. You kidding me? You're going to make that logic leap on top of all this other stuff that's going on, all these other uses of this word, even with your own culture. I come on. And then, uh, by the way, then Ice Cube comes on 
<laughs> Ice Cube, who and, and Ice Cube's coming out and lecturing Bill Maher about the use of this word. Ice Cube, again, this is this is the hypocrisy. The, they don't see the irony in the words. Ice Cube has made his fortune not just on niggas with attitude. Which you know, was rapping about doing all sorts of horrible things to everybody, disrespecting women, disrespecting uh, people in his own culture, all this violence. So that aside, you want to talk about cultural appropriation, friends? Let's talk about Ice Cube. He's made a fortune making those stupid Are We There Yet movies where he's just pretending to be white and it's making the entire movie is making fun of white culture and a black dad being put in that world. And then, a you know, getting into the role of, of a uh, white dad culture with his stupid kids. That's what the movies are. There's like five of them now. So you're welcome ice cube. Cause we don't care. We're not bothered, but please make a bigger deal over nothing. When this, when this comes around, and then uh, it, just to cap this this little conversation off, this gal Simone that was on there, she was ranting about something, and I don't even know what the hell she was talking about. She was black explaining. This is again teachable moments. So we do have mansplaining, uh, and this is black explaining. But she's black explaining that somehow white masters of the house got involved, and in how this was especially unfair to black women because they were, you know, sometimes the masters had sex with them in the house, and it's just this whole puzzling thing. Which again, it's like, okay, so you're just on your, you're just adding your own agenda onto this, onto this stupid joke. Now you're got to get your thing in there and in your plug for the women's rights, black feminist movement. And I mean, it was just this, like I said, a firing squad of just goofballs saying goofy things that that really, if you were going to take a step back and be honest, we're going to be honest with ourselves as a culture and a society. This is a moment where it should have just gone past like nothing. If you want to groan in the crowd, give a little groan in the crowd and move on. Because I can be perfectly honest with you. I've said vastly worse things on stage than this. Vastly worse things on stage. And if I was, you know, it's one of the things I don't want to record it and put it out there for everybody because it can be used against me and taken out of context as so many of these things are. But I can say, very funny joke. One that could definitely get me a full firing squad of black people on a late night cable show. (laughs) <laughs> speaking of firing squads let's hear a word from our new sponsor i firmly believe one of the most important things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to own a firearm but for a lot of people buying a gun can be an overwhelming process there are just so many options and not everyone feels comfortable walking into a gun store well our friends at martinarmory.com are doing their part to change that martin armory was founded with a simple goal to make buying a gun simple and affordable Instead of carrying thousands of different guns, martinarmory.com only carries 25. This allows them to focus on providing the most popular guns on the market at insanely cheap prices. And now for a limited time, their prices are even more insane as martinarmory.com is offering Lions of Liberty listeners free shipping. Simply go to martinarmory.com, pick an awesome gun, and enter the promo code LIONS. Again, that's martinarmory.com. The promo code is LIONS. All right, we are back. So first thing I want to talk about coming out of the break here is the trumpeting of Julius Caesar, the play put on by the public theater, Shakespeare in the Park. They've done it every year. And uh, and actually in 2012, I believe, they did it where a character very similar looking to Barack Obama played Julius Caesar and was summarily killed in the same manner you would, you would expect, wherein... 
He oversteps his bounds as the in the role of Caesar. The uh, senators rise up and stab him in the back, including good old Brutus, and he dies. This year, amidst all sorts of rhetoric, the public theater company put on their production of Julius Caesar and cast a man who looks suspiciously like Donald Trump as the lead. Now, there was already outcry over this before the shooting of the senators during the or the senator and his staff during the baseball game, which I'm going to get to in just a little bit. But uh, again, this you know people were were saying that this is uh, too far; it's out of control. That people would would kill the president on stage. But I have to say, people need to get a grip. Um, the baseball game violence aside, that's that's a step too far. And to say that people, I mean, look, you can't on one side defend free speech and make no mistake, this is free speech. This is a play. This is a rendition of it. This is a take on it. This is satire. This is public commentary. This is free speech. And if you value liberty, if you value the core principles of this country, you do not go and protest and yell out and and stomp your feet and call people names during the production of a play, especially when there's already a context set wherein they did the same thing for Obama. So it's not a left-right thing. It's a who's in office and who is overstepping what they're supposed to be doing when it comes to governmental authority in the role of president, which really is everybody. That's everybody. That's been everybody for the past 50 years, 70 years of our country. So let's not pretend that this is a partisan thing that's going on here. I mean, Julius Caesar was probably one of the best plays that you can put on in the condition our government's in, wherein we've got an executive power that is constantly stripping away rights, putting in regulations, taking away regulations, uh, causing wars with foreign entities without the approval of Congress as he's supposed to be. I mean, really, what better play can you put on any time, any year with any president that is currently in the office? So for people to go up there and stop the play and to insist that it gets shut down because somehow it's going to up the violence level based upon this historical play that's been on and performed a thousand, thousand times is just foolish. That's just you're just being a partisan hack. You need to take a sit down and uh, (laughs) and think about the point you're actually making, because. By quashing free speech, you're doing far more damage to this country than that play is doing. <laughs> I hope I hope you people understand that. Um, when you speak out, I mean, you're this is no better than Antifa trying to stop people from performing or trying to stop people from listening to someone speak by shouting them down. And I mean, again, at least these people weren't being violent. But I, I mean, again, I guess it's an act of aggression to storm on a stage in the middle of a production and, and halt that production. So. Again, stop, stop and think the more, you know, all right. Why don't we talk a little bit about Rand Paul now? Uh, Rand Paul actually teamed up with Kirsten Gillibrand and Cory Booker, both Democrats for the carers act. And this is actually something that came around uh, earlier, but never really got a chance to shine. And now it looks like it actually might have a good shot. It's basically got three Republican senators behind it. And I think 15 Democrats. And what it aims to do is make it a lot easier for marijuana usage for the state. So this act is going to make it uh, prohibitive for the federal government to interfere with states in regards to marijuana legislation. It's also going to make it so that banks can get involved and that, you know, because one of the big hindrances to medical marijuana and legalized marijuana is because marijuana is still a Schedule One federal 
uh, substance, the banks can't legally interact with it. So this bill takes a step forward to helping that out, pulling it back and making it so that they can function in these bankers or these people that are that have marijuana related companies can actually do their banking. So it doesn't look like they're doing, you know, sneaking under the table and doing the mafia style uh, all cash payments, which, by the way, is how so many banks and or so many companies get in trouble and get their assets seized for civil asset forfeiture by the damn FBI and the DEA. Because they think that they're doing something shady with drugs because of that money. Money laundering from the old mob days. So anyway, all good stuff there. Um, and this would also make marijuana a Schedule 2 drug. I mean, granted, I think it should just be completely decriminalized. and be a nothing, no schedule drug. Like the dude in uh, Big Lebowski, no schedule other than bowling. But hey, you get what you can get, right? So good job on that, Rand. Um, I also want to talk real quick about Rand Paul's reaction to the shooting i mean it clearly there was a shooting at a congressional baseball game and of course those were for the republican side and they're just you know, practicing i mean having a practice essentially and Rand paul was there he's one of the senators in attendance as well as steve scalise who got shot and the hip and was last i checked in critical condition still at the hospital but he had capital officers with him who actually were able to take out the shooter. Now, this guy had used a semi-automatic rifle. Uh, it was like a variant of the AK. I think it was an SKS. And <laughs> that's it. that on its own, by the way, side tangent. Uh, again, the number of idiots in the world. So CNN, of course, to push their liberal agenda, brings on a former, quote-unquote, a former Secret Service agent, uh, which was a woman, who went on to say that the AK that the guy had used was a uh, a semi-automatic weapon, which means that you can just hold the trigger down and it keeps firing. Which, of course, as we all know, is completely wrong. An idiotic statement. Did anybody correct her? No, of course not. So all of CNN's viewers, which I think there have to, there can't be any actual libertarians or conservatives left that watch CNN, but all of their progressive viewers pretty much got what they wanted. They got their confirmation bias that this guy's just getting a an AK-47. You can just buy him and walk around. Meanwhile, in truth, he had gotten his gun uh, in one of the strictest states to get his gun. He went through all of the checks, all of the permits, and still got it. And of course, he was a Bernie Sanders supporter. <laughs> As so many have been, uh, he was a, a rabid progressive and um, and had a deep hatred for what was going on in the Republican side of things and decided to use violence as a solution. But anyway, to get back to what Rand Paul said. So Rand had basically said that, you know, he was diving for the dirt, that there was probably 50 bullets fired over the course of uh, whatever it was a minute before he was able to get taken out. And he thanked, and this caused a little stir in libertarian circles, but he thanked the Capitol Police officers. And what I didn't understand was the pushback of, of people saying, like, oh, well, they can't thank the cops, you know, whatever. But I mean, look, I, I don't understand why why people have a, <laughs> an objection to the concept of police. Um, I mean, again, in a libertarian society, you still do need, in my opinion, some sort of peacekeeping force. Uh, I, I think that's for the best to uphold the laws that you put in place in whatever society, whatever private community you have, whether or not it's a voluntary grouping, whether or not it's a state. You know, you you have people that you still want to pay to have the function of patrolling, making sure things are going as they should. Um, I guess you could have your own militia that could form. You could have a community watch group if you were opposed to the idea of police. But I personally am not opposed to it. I'm just opposed to the idea of police and police unions and state goonery uh, and coercive force. 
Now, if you're talking about a, a very local police force that you're paying for voluntary and you could fire at any time, I don't see the problem with that. And frankly, I like to have the, you know, the idea of somebody around that actually is being paid to watch my back. Now, that being said, after the shooting, there was all sorts of back and forth. Of course, the progressives wasted no time in uh, not, not all of them. I'll say even Bernie Sanders, to his credit, did not jump on the this is why we have to change the rules on guns. Although Bernie's never been a big anti-gun guy, if we're being honest. But some of his less principled colleagues did jump on the bandwagon. I think Tim Kaine was one of them. Um, just, you know, using the opportunity, as they do with Sandy Hook and anything else, to to decry guns and decry the fact that they're available and all this other stuff. Meanwhile, you just have a, you have a crazy person. And he went through all the checks. So, I mean, clearly he wasn't uh, a crazy enough or violent person to begin with. But you had a crazy person go crazy. And there's not much you can do about that. When it's a lone gunman, there just is not much you can do to, to change that. And if it wasn't a gun, it would have been a bomb. It would have been a knife. It would have been something else. Um, I will say that there was some grandstanding on the Republican side as well. But... What cracked me up, of course, is you know you see these senators now being like, "Well, I'm going to carry a gun around." I think it was it might have been Tom Cotton, maybe not. I might be misquoting that. But there was one senator who's like, oh, "I'm going to start carrying a gun around. I've got a carry, you know, a concealed carry permit. I want to have my gun in my pocket all the time now." And that's like, "Well, that's great for you, buddy. What about the rest of us? You know, DC, I'm sure, has very strict gun laws in place. What about the rest of us that want to be able to carry a gun and protect ourselves?" Maybe if more people had guns and they were able to carry them around to protect themselves whenever they wanted to without having to go through hoops and uh, and have restrictions and be unable to get a concealed carry permit in most of the states without having to give a fingernail and a and a chunk of ass flesh, maybe these shootings wouldn't happen as often because you'd have people that would they'd be able to stop it. <laughs> you'd have people that would be armed and see somebody shooting randomly into a group of people and go up and defend those people. But no one's making that point. Not that I've seen anyway. Instead, we get people on the left calling for gun control. We get people on the right saying that that uh, the lefties are lunatics. Now, there is historical precedent for that. And I will say that I do, even though there's been some argument against this saying that, oh, we you know, don't blame the rhetoric. I do blame the rhetoric here for inciting much more violence. I don't know. In, I don't know about the rest of you. I don't know how old you are. I'm 37. In my lifetime, I've never seen this level of violence from the left. I've never seen this level of violence really from anybody. Maybe the L.A. riots is the last time I, I could think of uh, a violence at this level, but not on a national scale where you've got Antifa actively trying to go and hurt people that are throwing, um, you know, exploding cocktail bombs into crowds that are beating people with sticks that are shutting down free speech. They're actively being violent on a widespread basis. And then you've got this guy on top of it all going out and shooting a bunch of senators playing baseball in a field. The most American of pastimes goes out and shoots a bunch of them. And of course, is a Bernie Sanders supporter, the guy who stabbed people on the bus, also a Bernie Sanders supporter. So to me, if this is an isolated incident, if Antifa wasn't around, I would not think the way I do. But considering the fact that you add the pieces together, I have to think that the rhetoric has something to do with it. This has to have something to do with people inciting what I consider to be violence, saying, hey, go out there and resist. Don't accept this. Don't accept the result. Don't accept these ideas. Don't accept these people. You know, it's like Hillary Clinton. Uh, it's the the rhetoric of dehumanizing 
people that don't agree with you. And as I said earlier, in, when you're talking to people on the left so often, they get so emotional, they get so wrapped up in it, and it's not, it's not even a logical argument to them anymore. It's just a good versus evil. I'm good, and you are evil. And when you're evil, you don't deserve to live, because what you're doing is evil, and it has to be stopped, and I have the moral high ground. Thus, whatever they do is justified. The ends justify the means is a very popular way of thinking when it comes to progressives. That's why they're so authoritarian. You know, we're going to tax the hell out of you. We're going to shut your business down. We're going to make you stop smoking. We're going to uh, we're going to take away your lanes of traffic because the ends justify the means. And if you don't like it, well, stick it up your ass. That kind of rhetoric has led to this. Hashtag resist. This guy resisted in the way that he understood he was being told to and encouraged to. And the people he was shooting were not people anymore. They were simply obstacles to the greater good. Obstacles to this great vision of America wherein people have health care, even though it's going to be terrible health care for all of the rest of us. All right. Well, that was exciting, huh? Let me wrap this up with a new segment, guys. I know this is a, well, it's actually not going to be too long of a show, probably right around an hour, but let me wrap this up. Let me know what you think of this as well. Again, you can tweet me at Brian McWilliams. Make sure you mention at Lions of Liberty as well. Get the name out there. And hell, if you want to hashtag it, Electric Liberty Land or hashtag ELL, you could do that too. So let me, uh, <laughs> let me play my little intro here and then, uh, then I'll tell you about the new gig. So it's something I like to call bar talking. Explanation, please. Now, how do you know he has one? Five bucks says he does, ten says it's a doozy. Maybe it's a beer talking, Mart, but you got a butt that won't quit. They got these big chewy pretzels here that are all you get with your beers. You know, five dollars? Get out of here. Uh, it's a work in progress. I'm still working on that, but I liked it. You get the idea of where I'm going. I was using the new garage band because I actually put this together at work, and it took me forever because they I used like a new version that I have at the work computer. Like I just updated it and the new version doesn't look anything like the old version. The interactions are completely different. Trying to get the damn volume equalizer up. You have to do a certain special thing now instead of clicking the button. I love it when they make things, they streamline them in such a way that it makes it infinitely harder to use and counterintuitive to use. Goddamn Apple. Anywho, so this might change slightly over the course of, uh, of the next few weeks, but I do want to do something, a little, a little special segment wherein I call it Bar Talk, and like I was talking about earlier, if you actually find somebody that is willing to listen to you and willing to have a conversation, I'm trying to find things that might come up, wherein I say, okay, what's a good way of positioning this, where if you're talking to somebody at a bar, they'll give you a little time of day, and you can try to make a point to them about a topic. And the topic I'm picking is Dodd-Frank, because that's one that's it's coming out now. You know, it passed the House. It's a, I'd say it has slim to no chance of passing the Senate, to be honest, the way it is. But still, I like the fact that they're trying to roll back the regulations of Dodd-Frank, because Dodd-Frank came about through basically a misunderstanding of what actually caused the financial crisis. Tom Woods has several fantastic podcasts on this, by the way, with uh, Peter Wallison, I believe his name is, and uh, and he's a, you know writes for the Wall Street Journal and is a uh, professor over at the American Enterprise Institute. Really smart guy who's done a ton of work into this, and just he knows he knows his stuff. I'm trying not to curse on this show. You like how I go back and forth? Sometimes <laughs> shows I curse. Sometimes I don't curse. 
I'm trying, man. I'm trying to re- I'm trying to rein in the the cursed guys. I'm trying to rein it in. But anyway, okay. So this this bill basically that has passed the House is called the Financial Choice Act. And it is a rollback of some of the Dodd-Frank banking, uh, including rolling back some of the Consumer Protection Bureau's oversights and abilities. So let me just start from the from the beginning here. Here's how I want you to, to start this conversation. <laughs> and we'll see if it works. But and doing my own little side research into this, let me tell you how it's going to get their attention. You start off, you tell them, hey, hey, Mac, let me tell you something. You know who caused the financial crisis? Bill effing Clinton. And then just put your beer down on the bar. Give him a minute to take that in. Because it's true. It's crazy, but it's true. So hear me out here. Listen to this. So let's start at the beginning, though. Yeah, I'll get back to Clinton. So sit tight. Don't worry. Just give me a minute to explain this because it's important to, to know where I'm coming from here. So Dodd-Frank came about from a wrong diagnosis, basically. So what, ha- what caused uh, the housing crisis, which, of course, led to Dodd-Frank from Obama, was the housing crisis was actually co- actually caused by government housing policy. And, you know, the loans that were put into place in the 90s and the 2000s, 76% of which, by the way, were subprime loans that were on whose books? The government. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Yeah, that's right. The government. So the government puts out these loans. Why, though? Why you say, okay, man, why would why would the government get all these crazy, terrible loans on their books? That doesn't make any sense. Well, hold on. Let me tell you. Here's why they did it. Because they wanted to raise the levels of people that are buying houses in America. It was part of this initiative by Fannie Mae and President Bill Clinton. And as part of President Clinton's 1994 National Partners in Home Ownership, which is a private-public cooperative deal. And they set the goal for U.S. home ownership from 64%, which was basically where it had evened out. That was like the private mortgage market, the private mortgage banks. That's where they had reached kind of this they're a point of no, we could go no farther. They you know, past that's the point of no return where you start getting into these terrible credits where people are not going to pay you back, where you're going to become insolvent. So 64% was about the people and the number of people in the United States that could afford to have a home and could be trusted to pay off their loan. But not good enough for Bill Clinton. Not good enough for the housing authority. They said, no, we need to get to 70% by the year 2000. That's our goal. 70%. So what'd they do? Well, I said Fannie Mackerel. I meant Fannie Mae. So what did they do? To complete this deal, Fannie Mae said they're going to put a trillion dollar commitment in for affordable housing between 1994 and 2000. So they're backing all of these these terrible, terrible loans. And that's the thing. See, here's the other part of this. So the companies, you know, everybody got mad at these companies that are saying like, you know, well, why why are they buying all these bad securities up and they're dealing them? They're sucking up all these, these loans. But the thing is they had an enticement to do that. Because of the way that the government was set up, these GSEs, these government-secured uh, uh, entities, they actually had an enticement for the mortgage banks to get involved. Because they said, well, you know what? If you go ahead and and you know take these securities, we'll give you even more backing. We got you covered, man. We got you, we got you covered, fool! So the banks, you know, these mortgage banks, they're like, oh, geez, you know, these hedge funds, they're saying, 
well, this looks like a no lose. I mean, we should, you know, we're, we're being enticed. We're, we're being told that we were covered. We get extra benefits by buying up mortgage backed securities. So we should jump on this. You know, why would we not want to? And the government wants us to. They're, you know, they're all about it. If we don't do it, we're losing out. So they, so they get in, they start buying up all these, all these securities, these mortgage backed securities and, and helping out. And the government's all about it. They say pushing. Yeah. The government, they lowered the credit limits. And the thing is, too, Fannie and, and Freddie, they were responsible because they're such massive entities. They're responsible for setting the credit levels, essentially. The industry looked to them to set the levels. So when they lowered their credit level, their, their uh, state for would say, OK, now instead of having whatever it is, uh, 600 credit rating, you know, and we're going to lower it. Now you only have to have a 500 credit rating to get these deals. So everybody said, OK, we're going to play along. But what happened is that because there's no way to stay profitable and do this, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac basically became insolvent making these loans. And the securities that all these banks were buying up that they presume would be, you know, backed by government and be okay, you know, again, they'd be foolish not to take this risk. Those became insolvent as well. So it caused this domino effect. And again, this domino effect began with Bill effing Clinton and his initiative. <laughs> How do you like them apples? So, of course, after that happens, though, the stage is set. The wheels are turning. Everybody knew it couldn't sustain itself, though. The government agencies knew. There's actually documented records of people at Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac saying, look, look, these housing policies policies are forcing us into making loans that are going to make us insolvent. We, we, can't, we can't keep it up. There's no way to do it. But the government wants us to keep making these loans because they want to keep people having that American dream. They want to keep home ownership up. They want to keep the housing industry booming. So really, they created the bubble, and then they made sure the bubble would pop. This is all government. So what happens then? So we turn around and we say, oh, my God, well, we got to stop this. This is ridiculous. Shame on shame on these, these hedge funds for doing this, for buying these securities, which we made so attractive to them to buy. Shame on them. So they threw them under the bus. And, uh, and of course, then the government with Dodd-Frank, they said, well, we got to make sure that this doesn't happen again, even though, of course, we were responsible for it. So, so what do we do? Here, we're going to make Dodd-Frank, and we're going to put an institution in place that's, that's going to oversee all these big institutions. You know, we're going to designate like 50 of them that are real important. And we're going to make sure the government, this newly created government bureau, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, we're going to make sure they're not doing any funny business. Which, of course, is ironic because the government couldn't see its own problem, this own it's this hurricane that it was forming. It couldn't see it was making its own little little turd sandwich there. And now it's hired a new oversight committee to make sure that the turd sandwich got a pickle on the side of the plate. <laughs> you got to love it. You got to love it. So Dodd Frank's rolled in there. Uh, they've got these uh, this regulatory body which slows everything down, makes it more expensive. They've got the Consumer Protection Bureau, which is making uh, making life miserable for small banks and for small loaners, basically forcing them out because they put in a new thousand page rule book for making a loan or making a mortgage loan. So small people can't deal with that. They're not going to hire a lawyer to read through a thousand pages. That's only the big players are staying in the game. And then you got this thing called the Volcker Rule, which basically they put into place because they said that banks were taking too many risks with their own money, mind you, with their own money. So they said banks are not allowed to trade their own securities. 
They're not allowed to trade them for cash because a lot of a lot of time what banks would do, especially when it comes to mortgages and these these bundled mortgages, they don't they don't sell them on exchanges. They'd sell them to other banks, or people could buy them, you know, personally off the off the banks themselves. So they created liquidity for themselves. And what happened with this Volcker rule and with all of these different regulations is they actually sucked up a lot of the liquidity in the market. Which again, why? What was one of the big causes of the financial crisis? Lack of liquidity. So they put a rule into place that made it even tougher for banks to become liquid because they couldn't sell off any of their own securities. Why? Because they said they had to only do things that would benefit their own customers, even with their own money. Said, well, you you uh, investing your own money doesn't help the customers. This is like if somebody came over. <laughs> I mean, really, this is like if somebody came over and they they came to your house, and they lent you twenty dollars, and they said, "Hey, well, you got my twenty dollars, man. You can't sell anything else in your house." I know, I I know you own the TV. I know that's your TV. You bought that TV, but you can't sell that TV because it's not in my interests, friend. So until my twenty dollars is out of your pocket. You hold on to that TV. You hold on to that 1984 Zenith. I don't know why I started talking like that, like a like a weird New Yorker. But anyway, it, it's just a, a completely idiotic rule, and all the banks are against it, obviously, because they can't you know become more profitable. How is it? How is this fair to their shareholders? I don't know. Basically, handcuffing them completely and not letting them use their own money for monetary purposes because it would be too risky to the financial system. Wherein. How about we just let them fail? You, you take a risk and you fail. You go out of business and that's it. And the uh, the economy adjusts itself and we learn not to do that again instead of bailing them out, right? But anyway, that's neither here nor there. So anyway, long story short, to come back around, Dodd-Frank, I say repeal it. And as you can see, this is a government-created thing. This began with government. They're laying more government on top to solve the problem, which happens so often in society. You have regulations that are only there to solve other regulations. So repeal Dodd-Frank. It's not going to cause another financial crisis. And by the way, the subprime loans everybody was worried about in the first place, everybody blamed for this crisis in the first place, the Federal Housing Authority has already begun issuing them again. They started in 2015. So if anybody's causing another crash, it's going to be the government once again. And funny side note, I actually am in the market somewhat for a house, and I just was speaking to my father-in-law and my wife the other day, and what are we talking about doing? FHA loan, baby. Now, we're better off than most people probably are, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, we both make a decent amount of money, so we're not, we're not being uh, preyed upon, but the Federal Housing Authority... Not Fannie and Freddie. They've, they've taken their hat out of the ring. But the Federal Housing Authority has a deal in place where you just have to put 3.5% down of your, uh, of your, your, as your down payment if you have a credit score of 580 or above, which is a pretty low bar. <laughs> so we're actually looking about doing that because it makes a lot of sense for us to do it. There's like a no-lose, especially for first house. So there you go. There you go. Bark talk in a nutshell. Uh, we'll see if that makes sense. I hope I gave you some decent talking points of which you can use when you're in a conversation. Again, trying to hit on some major points that people can uh, can wrap their noggins around during these contentious bar debates. <laughs> All right, guys, I think that is going to wrap it up for today's show. So I want to remind everybody, please do support our podcast. Go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. You can join our uh, Podbean patron program there for as little as $5 a month. We also have some awesome t-shirts from uh, from the wonderful Dan Smots. You can listen to his podcast, by the way, called The System is Down, if you want. Give me a little pluggy plug. 
But you can check those out at lionsofliberty.store. Listen to Mark Clare on Mondays. As I mentioned, that sh- uh, the 300 show is fantastic. John Odie Odermatt on Fridays also had a fantastic show this past Friday. So, guys, you got to check these people out. And uh, please, I ask you, uh, I beg you, and I ask you to please share the knowledge of this show. Tell people about the show. Write us an iTunes review. If you see somebody commenting and they want to know about Libertarian Podcasts, Tell them, tell them on Reddit. And thank you guys so much for those of you that did, uh, you know, comment. I saw a recent thread saying that you support us on Reddit. So thank you so much. We really need that support and helping to spread the ideas. One last thing I want to say at the end of the show, somebody else needs your support. Now, as you might have heard before, Mark Clare had already interviewed uh, the head of DonorC. This is a app, DonorC that you can download and basically cuts out the middleman, allows you to donate straight to charities. Now, we have a brand new initiative that we're hoping you can help us with. We're teaming up with people from like the Lava Flow podcast, We Are Libertarians, Johnny Rocket, uh, to try to crowdfund and help fund these projects, which are just honestly changing people's lives to a degree you wouldn't even believe. The latest project is over in... uh, Malawi. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, but anyway, it's basically this project is to build a well for 300 families. So these people have had to walk 45 minutes each way to get water from a dirty swamp. People are dying because they're getting diseases. They pick up from drinking, the, drinking this filthy water. Uh, it's, I mean, it's really horrible. So what we're doing with, uh, and again, Gret, Gret Glyer, excuse me, is the head of Donor C. So check this out. Donor, D-O-N-O-R-C-S-E-E. Um, we want people to come and support this basically in a dig a well. We need about $3,000 as of recording this and they're going to get fresh water. It's going to last them 20 years. I mean, you will really change a life. So we're doing this again with our libertarian podcast pals, make a difference. So please do check that out. And I will link to this in the show notes again, lionsofliberty.com forward slash E L L 25. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up from me, Brian McWilliams from us here at lions of Liberty and from electric Liberty land. Always stay plugged in to liberty.